And welcome to more questions. I am here with the wonderful Michael Wilcock, who is lead social scientist at the World Bank. We'll be discussing how we can assess the impact and scalability of complex interventions. So, Michael, you champion mixed methods to understand whether and why, and the conditions under which interventions can be effective. So, tell me, why should project evaluations incorporate mixed methods? Well, I think the development community has a pretty good idea about how to assess relatively straightforward interventions and by that I mean interventions where the connection between the inputs and the outcomes are relatively well understood. Uh, the, the biology and uh, physiology behind immunizing babies for example is well understood except in a few crazy quarters of the world and so when we do X we can reasonably presume that we will get Y. Um, but if you look at the sustainable development goals and all of the things that have happened recently in development, the, the mandate we've been given, the world has given to the development community now includes things that were in, uh, never in the wildest imagination <laughs> part of what, what the original vision for development was. And so we still need to evaluate these things as well as the times we're using public money, we're using uh, other people's money to uh, do this important work. The connection between the X and the Y, the, the doing something over here and the seeing the outcome over there is much more ambiguous once you move into the social space, the justice space, the governance space, all the things that we're trying to do in fragile states, all of this stuff just doesn't have a, a capital T theory that underpins it such that if we, we can go into a place with a high degree of confidence that uh, we know what we're doing. And we often have to concede oftentimes that we are wagering. We are making a calculated professional uh, assessment of a situation and then trying to, to move that forward. So precisely because the, of the deep inherent ambiguity that surrounds this kind of work, you've kind of got to deeply triangulate just to understand the context within which you're working, to understand which actual problems you should be tackling. All of this just requires a whole array of social scientific tools and entry points for making sense of that. So it's a due diligence issue as much as any deeply strategic stuff, though perhaps we might talk about that later, but it's the, it's the, it's the very uh, nature of complex interventions that they don't map neatly or obviously onto a singular set of instruments. And if we're serious about addressing these types of interventions, then we just need to call upon the full kit of, of theory and methods that social science has to bear. But wait, so, so you're saying, so for example, we're doing complex intervention, we don't know exactly what will happen, so we can't sort of uh, have a preset set of uh, independent variables. Why can't you just have a longer set of variables that you're testing, like a bigger array of survey questions? Well, in principle, we would like to do that, but those, mm. that costs time and money to, mm. do, to do that, and uh, those have to be then factored into the overall cost of the intervention. And... Uh, I guess apropos your, what your point you just made really is that another characteristic of these interventions is the time frame over which it's reasonable to expect to see an outcome is often deeply uncertain as well. If I build a bridge, uh, the moment I cut the ribbon on the bridge and watch the traffic flow, beautiful things are happening, people are being connected, uh, efficiency has been gained, all sorts of nice things are happening. But uh, if I try, uh, am doing a gender empowerment program in a fragile state, for example, if I could be on a multi-generational time yeah. frame before anything really starts to change. That's the essence of what many social movements in gender equality and labor and justice recognize when they mm -hmm. sign up for this kind of work, that they're on a multi-generational challenge. Things may not actually, the needle might not move at all during their lifetime. And if you're on that kind of path in development, geez, you know, that means you're going to your annual review saying, sorry, actually, we, we've, we've been working our butts off for the last year, but we just haven't really got much to show for it in any clean, empirical sense. And so in an age where everybody's desperately trying to show that you know, aid works or that, that their particular uh, sector is making a difference in the world, blah, 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 if you find yourself in a, in a showdown, as it were, with people that are immunizing babies and building bridges and you're trying to uh, improve the working conditions of non-unionized labor in factories in Cambodia, like if you're a rational bureaucrat, you, <laughs> you go with the stuff that you know is going to play well. You, know that with, you, know, you go with the things that are likely to produce predictable, measurable, countable, defendable, photographable, uh, happy stories uh, versus these things that are just way murkier, but in the grand scheme of things, probably actually more important. But I think 
talking of social movements, maybe a nice example is something that I'm involved in right now. So we're striking, and even though we haven't achieved a change in outcomes that would come up in a quant you know, test, you know, our pension test, there has been a qualitative shift in mood in that through striking together, through seeing others on the seats, through seeing thousands march through London, we realise the groundswell of support, we feel emboldened, we feel inspired to push for ch further change because we see that others are with us. So that's a sort of qualitative change that would come up if you did ethnographic research as part of the strike. But if you just did a quant study looking at outcomes, you know, has our pension changed, has any, have any, you wouldn't see that. So you wouldn't sit, you know, because change takes a long time, longer than I thought, I th you know, I thought this strike would be over by now. But you do the qualitative research and you do see that things are changing. Right. And it's still, you know, here we are on this particular day and it's still unsure as to how that's all going to play out. And so it's a principled wager that everybody is making saying, well, we're doing this because we believe it's right. And yes, we pool our wisdom sort of strategically about what who who we campaign to who we write letters to why we even what we choose this type form of mm. striking versus some other mm. form of action all of that's a, in essence a calculated wager and mm. if we have this conversation next week maybe your pensions are fine and everybody's celebrating and patting themselves on the back for a job well done and maybe you get denied and mm. you're back on the picket lines mm. and you go for raise the stakes one more and geez is that a good choice do you, are you really going to start peeling off members if you start messing with exams and da 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 so those that, that's the defining feature of a, it's a microcosm the examples you've given us mm. is really good mm. imagine doing that in sudan right yeah, now right? exactly exactly um and that's what a lot of brave people sign up for is doing precisely that kind of work but like everybody else they've got to make a pitch to someone to pay their bills and pay their mortgages and all the rest of it and so the, the point back to where we started on mm. when sort of the, the mixed method part of it is is only ever part of it right it yeah. has to be connected to a theory and the theory has to have a, a, a reason sense of what to expect by when um, but also a, a reason for people to wager that this particular strategy as uncertain and uh, as uncertain as it is that it will yield the, the outcome you want, is still nonetheless a, a course of action that on principle and on strategy mm. grounds makes sense. And a lot of development projects are just instantiations of that dynamic, mm. but with you know millions of lives and dollars and politi political uh, careers on the line, and that's a very unholy mix of forces that have to be managed or harnessed or engaged with somehow if you, t if you take on a career in development. Yeah, but okay, so going back to that, of course, but going back to your mixed, method, mi mixed methods point, can you give me an example where quant methods don't give you the full story? Well, but quantitative techniques are, of the whole strength of them is they're uh, able to be uh, done on large populations, yeah. very large sample sizes, mm. uh, and they're really good on measuring things that can be measured. Mm. So everything to do with demographic variables, anything to do with... Uh, test scores, anything to do with uh, height and age, and all, all the, mm. the things that uh, we use when we or measure when we do a household survey or do a census, or those, and the, that's the beauty of it. But they're a, kind of a mile wide and an inch deep in, in, in that sort of sense. But for policy purposes, policy by definition is something that's usually done on a population. So, uh, to the extent that <coughs> you need population level data to, to, in, to justify or in, inform a policy response, then uh, the quantitative approach is for many, many serious problems exactly the right way to mm. go. But as I said at the beginning, now we find ourselves in the development space at least, and the, any, any government in the mm. world for that matter, finds itself in a policy space that now has lots of things that can be measured and, lot, and, and lots of things that are really really important but that just that this can't be measured so mm. there's um, like our good friend Matt Andrews who uses the analogy of an iceberg and say look we're a lot of what we're doing is where we're looking at the, the stuff above the waterline the 10% that we can see and measure and photograph but it's only if you've got a good theory that you know that there's actually 90% of other stuff mm. going on underneath and uh, for a lot of what we're trying to assess now there isn't any clear metric for how one does that or even if there is a metric uh, like uh, crime rates or something like that, it's not clear whether the rising or falling crime rates are actually a good thing or a bad thing, or uh, usually would say they're a bad thing um, if they were rising, but sometimes in developing countries, for example, when uh, 
gender empowerment programs are, are initiated, you've yeah, got to have a really time. good wits about yourself for how you interpret that the quantitative data that might be t given to you at face value because if you actually, if women decide to actually start asserting their rights and uh, they, are, they go to a training program that convinces them that yes indeed this is, this is historically and, and in my country even a legitimate act for me to take, and uppity husbands decide that they're going to stand down on that, well, your gender violence statistics are probably going to rise. Is that a, is the, is the rising of that statistic, assuming all the right mm. methodological uh, tools are in play, uh, <coughs> is that, what, how do you interpret that number? And that's a really nice point that you make in the chapter uh, talking about Rouser research, highlighting that even if you have a survey showing domestic violence, that might underestimate the extent of domestic violence because Indian women might not see a slap as domestic violence, so might not report it. Right. So that's why you need qualitative research to understand what counts as violence, and then you might tailor your survey accordingly. Exactly. And I think the other big uh, important contribution that qualitative approaches take are uh, to understand the mechanisms. Like we now, it's a common mm. sort of euphemistic phrase that we talk about getting inside the black box. Well, yeah. you know, what does that really mean? That means that we're trying to look at all the steps between X and Y. All the, if we have some, some intervention of one kind that we call X and then an outcome that we call Y, there's, uh, in, in biology, we have a whole scientific theory of, of, of biopharmacology that says if I introduce this particular kind of uh, <laughs> combination of drugs yeah. into my body that it, there's a whole series of mechanisms that are well understood that will make it less likely that I get infected by smallpox or something. Mm. Um, we just don't have a lot of that in social science. We have we have the beginnings of it, but our black box is usually an assumption or a, or a mm. set of or, or broad principles about that, about how that works. But to use a, a specific example, also from uh, our good friend Biju Rao's work, I mean the. When you get a null result, for example, let's say you've got a, even a randomized controlled trial and you've, and you've been doing an intervention for a while and you, on average, get a no, uh, no change compared to the follow-up versus your baseline. Mm. Right? What's, how do you interpret that? Right? Mm. Well, at face value, the headline in the newspaper would be, Alice has been working on a program for three years, she has nothing to show for it, she should be fired because she's incompetent or her program sucks or whatever. Right? Um, but if, it, if, that's an, if it's a really complex intervention, uh, very strong theory grounds would say there's going to be a really high standard deviation around that mean. There's going to be, it might on average uh, yield a null result, but there's probably some group somewhere for whom it was actually pretty, worked pretty well, actually. Another group that sort of muddled through and really didn't actually make a difference. In some cases, like in uh, gender empowerment types of initiatives, it could severely it could have led people to actually suffer way more than they did mm -hmm. before because they, there was inadequate ethical consideration given to just how sensitive this issue was in this particular kind of community. And so thinking that you could just uh, hold a training program where this would lead to an epiphany on the part of men, oh my goodness, I've been wrong, sorry. <laughs> you know, that just, some ways that's just, you're messing with really s sacred stuff, literally in some cases. So. Good qualitative work just really helps you to get a much more granular understanding of the conditions under which these this this standard deviation is generated, and some of that's context, some of that's the the diligence of how well it's implemented, uh, or how supported it is by local political forces, yeah. all manner of things mm. that would never show up on a or couldn't even show up on a on a survey. Mm. So we all know in developing countries that you know there's a whole bunch of uh, and even in <laughs> even in England, there's, you know, there's, there are very powerful networks that yep. determine who gets to run for election, and uh, and those networks are uh, partly familial and they're partly uh, connected to people that support you in campaigns. Like you can't, there's no statistical survey that's ever going to show you all of that. But if you know your chops and you're worked in a particular place for long enough, you see what other people don't see, and that mm -hmm. the. The, the comparative advantage of the qualitative stuff is helping you to observe the unobservable, just get beneath the waterline and see just how big that 90% under the water actually mm. is. And if, you're not, if you don't know that and you, and you have just been narrowly focused on the things that happen to be measurable, that happen to be countable, that happen to have a, be able to be done at scale across mm. large numbers of people because you just act by disciplinary principle privilege uh, big sample sizes, um, then you just miss all that stuff, which is, which is again, it's just not an argument for not having good sample sizes when you can, and not, and it is a, certainly an argument for uh, for certain problems that lend themselves to 
measurement around fairly straightforward. If you're looking at nutrition and you're trying to learn the obvious way you measure nutritional effectiveness on height weight measures, then yeah, knock yourself out. Go mm. and collect a zillion different mm. data points on the heights and weight measures and you can tell a very comprehensive story to the World Health Organization about stunting levels mm. in this province of Malawi or something. But um, as I said, what we've done in development over this over the last over the 18 years of this of this century is just to expand by orders of magnitude the scale and the complexity of the tasks that are now on the development agenda and all of this has to be assessed in the next 12 years by 2030 and it's just gonna it's just a very uh, <laughs> big mess almost waiting to happen when these 167 indicators around have we changed justice for all by 2030 like what she's what's what's the claiming gonna look like in that yeah. space what kind of uh, if we just privilege one methodology, what kind of awful things are going to be done to shoehorn really vexing problems into a singular methodological space so that some index of something can be created and aggregated and pie charts can be presented with to nodding heads in some mm. solemn capital city meeting somewhere and just have that be entirely an artifact of construction of how we frame the problem rather than an accurate representation of the world. And I just think we... <laughs> We, we, as social scientists, should be using the full array of tools that we have at our disposal and not just shoehorning them into a, an administrative apparatus that happens to be what we've been bequeathed. Mm, absolutely, and I'll give you two more Alice Evans examples. So, for example, um, and I think you, so you made this great point that um, when we have a big N, big N sample that enables us to justify what's going on so that we can see it's not just in some you know, niche study. So I partnered up with a great quantitative political sociologist, Liam Swiss, because I had this hunch that we saw big rural-urban differences in that in cities there's much greater support for gender equality. That was my hunch through doing ethnographic research in Zambia, in mm. rural and urban areas. So I asked Liam to team up with me, and he looked at the DHS data and the, and the Afrobarometer data and Asia Barometer data. Then he did a big regression controlling for income, education, blah, blah, blah. Finds that across all these data sets that, yes, rural people are less likely to support gender equality in a range of domains. Then I test these ideas and try to understand what's causing it through doing rural urban comparative ethnographic research in both Zambia and Cambodia to try to understand well why is it that people in cities become more supportive of gender equality um, so yeah that was a cool example genius <laughs> well I would put it like that another example <laughs> is what I did in Latin America so there's some nice quantitative data showing that when you have more strikes or more labor movements then you get uh, more redistribution so then I looked at the ethnographic research to understand, well, why is it that trade unions and social mobilization do it and highlighting how we see shifts in solidarity, etc. So, yeah, that's the answer. I, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. But let me ask you another question. Suppose I do mixed methods. Can I then generalize? Because this is the big thing people want. They want scalability. Does mixed methods allow me to generalize beyond the iceberg, beyond that one iceberg? There are a number of other things that one needs to know in order to be able to generalize, and I'm going to just different forms of generalizing. We'll just discuss two, right? One is to take it uh, a result from a context like Cambodia or Malawi, uh, and we take that to Chad and Mongolia, mm. right? And geez, the 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 uh, very powerful incentives to oversell the mechanisms by which this outcome has been obtained in, in via whatever methodology to then claim that this is uh, that provides warrant for you as a development expert to truck your wares around a whole bunch of other environments the more well, the, the parallel issue is uh, say with your rural urban type examples that if we were if we had a, an initiative that worked fabulously in urban areas mm. for example on what grounds do we saying, well, in the same country, the same political space, mm. essentially, would we expect to see that same kind of result in, um, in rural areas? If we got it for women, would we see mm. it for men? So there's, there's intra-political space generalizing. And then there's the big scaling up question. Well, that's mm. a big issue now as well. Like, we've, the clocks are ticking. We've got to, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna achieve these goals by 2030, we've got to double down on what works. Yeah. So what does work? Mm. Let's do a whole bunch of 
tests, let's do systematic reviews and sort of convince ourselves in the serious halls of intellectual inquiry that yes, indeed, we've shown mm -hmm. that conditional cash transfers work or something mm -hmm. like that and think, well, yes, now we've got our thing, now we're just gonna, gonna load this all up. So the answer to your question is that methodology per se doesn't provide the warrant for the, for the extrapolation or mm -hmm. the, the generalizing. Uh, it's got to be a whole combination of things that help you to come, help a team of people, in essence, come to a reasoned decision about the conditions under which the claim you got in context A at scale B <laughs> with population C using intervention D uh, is going to then be find an equivalent enough set of corresponding factors in your, mm. the new setting you're going to work out uh, to make that happen. So. Uh, to make that generalizing happen. Uh, but in the scaling space, you know, again, we, if, if it's the pressures to think that if X got me Y, then 10X will get me 10Y, <laughs> as I like to say, great mathematics, terrible social science, mm. right? Uh, so that is so compelling to a policy person that, uh, we, look, we got this fantastic result with a... With a um, so you're talking about the here, uh, scaling initiative. up within one country, yeah, and that might pilots, right? So, and a lot of the, the stuff that uh, you've talked about, we've talked about, but you've talked about more in detail with Matt, Andrews. I mean, all of that. You know, a lot of our stuff is about trying to sh uh, do small-scale stuff first, and then on the, that, if that then seems mm. to be generating some interesting results, then you move to a bigger stage. But, geez, there's also there's so many interesting studies that. Uh, uh, show that things that worked great as a pilot sort of were disastrous <laughs> when they went to scale. Mm. I'll give you some examples shortly. Um, other stuff that was a kind of a dog to start with and then what do you know it was scaled up and turned out to be pretty good when you actually put mm. real, real money and real political support behind it. Mm. You wouldn't have done that if you took it at face value. Um, the initial result at face value. Or things that seem to be a shoot, what I call a shooting star project. Great initial results, everyone gets excited and decides mm. that's really great. Oh, we tested it five years later and the, 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 mm. the hype cycle is gone and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the tale of distribution of impact is just, is just come all the way down and there's actually not a result. So lots of present term thinking about, about things uh, that doesn't allow us to uh, think or think properly about these these scaling questions and these and these uh, uh, generalizing questions. And you know the example that comes to my mind when I think of that is potistry budgeting. So that started off in Brazil in these cities in the in the 1980s in the south of Brazil, and it was really phenomenal and it triggered amazing results and redistribution. And then the Brazil national government, the PT, got excited about it, so they tried it in more and more cities all over Brazil. And then we find out that it doesn't really have the same results, and we find that where you have strong, autonomous, civic associations, then you have a sort of stronger contestation, and they can push for redistribution. But in more sort of conservative, traditional, hierarchical regimes, uh, places, even within Brazil, then the same power dynamics repeat themselves. So just creates changing the form doesn't actually change the function, to use your, your terminology. And then that also participation went mad, you know, the World Bank took participation all over the world. And lo and behold, you know, power inequalities repeat themselves through participation. And so maybe that's a nice example of why qualitative research matters, because it highlights the importance of how existing inequalities will reproduce themselves in whatever new institutional design that you've got. Yeah, exactly. But in a better world, we would we wouldn't have to keep learning that lesson every time, right? We would, have, if we were well educated as opposed to well trained, well, well educated and well trained, I guess would be the perfect combination. You would have a wider intellectual diet that you would be reared on that would enable you to anticipate almost on first principles that precisely those kinds of issues were going to be in play when you took your deeply socially intensive kind of um, thing like participatory budgeting mm. from Porto Alegre and suddenly decide, geez, that sounds like great for Tanzania, we should, you know. And, and it, it, again, so much of our, our policy conversation that we have to have in development now, although we've kind of put ourselves into because we, in our desperate attempt to, pr to protect the aid budgets, uh, we 
made a wager or a bargain, a Faustian bargain almost, that we would win the debate if we could prove that what we were doing works. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that people would suddenly think that was compelling reason. To, and and it, for some people, it, no doubt it is, right? Mm. But I just don't... I, that was always a wager that was uh, <laughs> doomed, it seemed to me, almost. Uh, it, there had to be a multi-stranded strategy. Yes, you have to have enough stuff to keep the... Uh, to keep some plausible narrative that we know what we're mm. doing going, but geez, the really hard things that are the binding constraint on development, I think, are just not things that lend themselves to a... a uh, a newspaper headline about you know, e we found the equals MC squared. We we know what to do because we have found it. That's just not true. Oh, so anything. you think that the the desire to defend and justify A creates a sense of hubris, which uh, is mythical. Yeah, but I mean, or creates 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 the the wall of hubris. Yeah, but the, I mean, the, the harsh. The, I mean, the reality is, I think that there are certain problems in development which. Uh, hubris a bull. <laughs> right? I think in a lot of the stuff that macroeconomists mm. do, mm. Dare, dare I say the fact that after a global financial crisis mm. they didn't anticipate, but um, you know, the relationship between inflation and raising interest rates, I mean, mm. there, there hasn't, with, with the exception maybe of Zimbabwe, I mean, the, the, the world of central bankers have kind of figured out how to tame mm. something that for much of the 20th century was a, was a pretty serious cause of mm economic and thus political instability mm. and there are now tools that people can learn and that people can share that kind of help you out in these really awful uh, types of situations but uh, why I like Game of Thrones and other kind of TV shows is they are really trying to show that there is this have always been and forever will be these deep human problems that uh, just don't map onto a toolkit type solution and we've got a protect the space for doing that work at the same time as we feed enough stuff back into the system that, it, that we can do and we, that we're pretty confident about. But we have to have a bigger theory about what, because development is everything. It changes everything. Mm. It changes gender relations. It yeah. changes how long people live. It changes where they live. It changes how they think about themselves. Everything gets messed up with this development process doing its thing. And certain aspects of that are very w able to be theorized, measured, and mapped onto a policy instrument, and geez, a whole bunch of stuff just isn't. And trying to get one logic, one instrumentality to do all that work, which in effect is what we do when we try to imagine that we're just uh, white lab coat guys in development, <laughs> where we are the doctors of development, yeah. we're doing RCT, right, randomized control trials, but that's what the serious people do. Yeah, I just, I, that just, there's no good historical argument for, or, or contemporary sensibility, really, in which that is the right way to think about how to engage with South Sudan, how to, en how to engage with... When there's um, so much uncertainty. But can I say one thing in favour of the World Bank? Oh, thank um, you, that's the, great. Sure, <laughs> their, their World Development Reports 2018 on education, they made the really nice point on generalizability that there is no one size fits one best size fits all, as many people have locked in saying for a lot longer period. <laughs> and they say, no, actually what we need to do is embrace PDIA and see what works in context and build up support and legitimacy for that experimentation. And only if you experiment and you try new things, then you build local ownership. Yeah. So I think we are going in, in this direction of recognizing that you can't generalize. You know, we've learned from the whole participatory budgeting failure. I, yeah, but how have we got to a world where a, a world development report can start to talk that way to the world? I mean, that, that's a social movement in effect doing its thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I hope your listeners <laughs> know that when you say something like PDA, you're, you're referring oh, yeah, to a thing called Problem Driven Adaptation, which comes out of a whole uh, long-standing work program that I've been working on with Matt Andrews and Lance Pritchett for a long time now. and um, But we, the, the, I mean, that's the second half of our book that we did last year. I mean, it's, it's, it's a sort of how-to guide to doing this thing we call PDA because we didn't want to just be churlish critics. We wanted to beat something with something better. We wanted to mm. try and put our necks out to offer an alternative to, to what that orthodoxy looks like. But we, we can't, no one doing anything innovative by definition can 
make a case up front that yes this new thing will work mm. <laughs> so we didn't have rigorous evidence that this where we had a pretty we, we like to think we're historically literate we like to think we know how South Korea got really good we need to know how Toyota got really good how mm. armies get really mm -hmm. good they all start off small and then they figure out how to collectively do amazing things and so our we were iterating on the basis, well, in inferring, I should say, on the basis of uh, how today's successful organizations became successful and then looking at how that is diametrically opposite to pretty much how most of reform is done. And then said, well, here's, here, we've, we're not completely in the dark here. We've done enough sort of smaller scale uh, initiatives around this stuff. We've got enough credibility as pr development professionals and enough gray hair or something that enables us to articulate this and to promote it with a, an appropriate measure of confidence but not hubris about where we think it go and then treat it as a problem that itself needs to be put through a PDIA process and mm. that's all we've been doing with our online training program all that we're now doing individually uh, with a whole range of different initiatives around the world and a whole bunch of different sectors and not just education from a WDR but in water and in health and a, ho a whole bunch of other really interesting groups working in refugee camps with Mercy Corps. I mean, a whole bunch of unlikely characters. We're, we were talking before about, you know, Ukraine, for example, mm. like, you know, a country coming out of sort of Cold War logics and uh, very much imposed kind of systems that they're trying to vernacularize and make them more Ukrainian rather than just pale imitations of Soviet replications. And, so many interesting places and people and groups and sectors where this kind of story resonates with them and we treat it like any other social movement treats what it does it's sort of like whether you're trying to protect your pension as, an, as, a, as a British academic or anything else you, you wager you make a calculated gamble there is no world in which there's an E equals MC squared for how to fix it you just do it and mm. maybe you're right maybe you won't history will be kind to you if it does and it'll laugh at you if it doesn't but that's that's what you sign up for when you start up for this kind of work. So, but geez, protecting that or creating and protecting the space to do that is requires pretty uh, extraordinary leadership. It requires people that have got longer time horizons than most politicians do. We're under no illusions about all of that. Uh, but you know, we don't claim to have the secret sauce that somehow has eluded uh, smart people in in previous generations. But we like to think that we're standing on the shoulders of those giants but simultaneously building out precisely a, a social movement that collectively will figure out uh, how to do the work but also how to protect the space to do the work and that's a different kind of development uh, expertise a different yeah. kind of development work uh, and just thinking that well the a space to figure stuff out yeah. Space, yeah and the think well the, our job is to uh, find the things that work with a capital W yeah. and that having verified that through something we call a, a rigorous methodology that in itself provides warrant for waltzing around the world selling it as the solution or the mm. fastest or most expedient mm. way to meet these development goals that you've all signed up for that's just that's just mm. cowboy work I don't, yeah I just, I just yeah I that's just, the snake oil yeah and, 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 and the and it's not because it's entirely wrong, it's just mostly wrong. And, I, mm. and it's really hard to argue against it because a lot of my good friends and colleagues do, I mean, I've spent their whole careers doing this mm. kind of stuff. So I, and it's just when it finds itself, uh, when you're asking it to do something it wasn't supposed to do. That's, that's what I find most frustrating. You know, mm. When you're asking an intellectual claim and an intellectual foundation grounded in, almost in methodology alone as the basis for which you're making uh, what are ultimately deeply context-specific kinds of yes. uh, and what need to be very context-specific answers, thinking that the technology you're importing and the methodology on which that is grounded is enough, that, that is all that you fundamentally need to, with a straight face, tell someone who has real responsibilities and presides over real money uh, with real constraints and real mm. opposition mm. that this is what they should do and they should listen to you on the basis of that then I think we're in ethically very murky ground and that's where it becomes most problematic for me yes okay let me take you back to this point about mixed methods yep. do you think if we incorporated more qualitative research then we would have different policy insights and recommendations 
Yeah, I, logically I have to say that. But yeah. I, uh, uh, given what, the, uh, what we just have been saying, though, I think we have to follow that up very quickly with saying whatever the... I'm, I think we're trapped in policy speak. I, 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 I think if you look at, do a, a scholar Google search on the mm. word implementation, mm. like I can name the three sort of most important books on implementation. <laughs> and yet every scholarly paper we write always finishes with something, or the applied research papers mm. we do, finishes with a little two-page little bit called what? Policy implications. Right? Yes. Right? And as if we think, well, if the policy apparatus is just nudged this way rather than that way on the basis of my evidence or the result I'm finding here, then that's going to make the world a better place and I've done my job. Mm. And I think, actually, the binding constraint on so much of the stuff we really care about in the world is now in the implementation space. If we, well, at least the conditional question we should be asking is, whatever policy you're proposing, whatever, it, whatever mm. ideological stripe mm. it is that, you're, that you come from, whatever your policy prescription or agenda is, can the designated agency that's supposed to actually implement that do the work? So this is the big point about state capabilities. It's exactly the point about state capabilities, exactly what the World Development Report that you just mentioned says, because there's, there's own, the, the policy space for education is not that controversial, and it can be when teachers' unions might get uh, uppity about certain things, but there's not a, every country in the world agrees that every kid in their country, every uh, 12 year, up to 12 years old at least should have a full course of education. Yeah. Everybody agrees the teachers should show up for work. <laughs> Everybody agrees more or less on the, that uh, some textbooks in the classroom would be a good idea and maybe some chalk on a blackboard yeah. would be pretty good too. We can agree that slightly smaller classrooms are probably better than oversized big ones. So you're saying the policy stuff that we need isn't rocket science, but we, we, the, the, what is the big challenge is working out how to build state capabilities. And I guess you're then going to say to work out how to build state capabilities, we need the qualitative research. Yeah, we need to, we need to help systems learn mm. how to acquire the capability, mm. even to do the basic stuff, like even getting people to show up for work. Yeah. Like there's a, every country, every organ, every ministry in the world has a policy. It doesn't even need to be stated almost mm. that people show up to do the mm. job. And yet, you know, as the World Development Report 2004 at least was showing, like, you know, there are countries, Bangladesh and other places, where 70% of the teachers just aren't even showing up for work. Yeah. There's no policy fix mm. to that because the policy is transparently obvious. Yeah. And yet, people don't show up to work. Mm. Like, and is that just why? Well, mm. then you need to figure it out. You need to actually do explain that and a big we did a big report on the Middle East a couple of years ago where we were looking at this absenteeism question in health clinics and um, again every <laughs> every Middle Eastern country has a policy that their health workers should show up for work every day and help people who are sick that that, that there's sure. no big <laughs> policy mystery about yeah. what's going on there and yet we could show very clearly in a, in a Google Earth map yeah. kind of way that there are national averages there are district averages there are uh, community level variations that literally go from 10 to 90 percent in terms of whether people yeah. are showing up for work today what's the if you want anything to be done you kind of got to have your workers showing up for work for sure and why are these people not showing up for work is it because it's a policy failure mm. no it's just a whole bunch of uh, really idiosyncratic reasons why cultures of expectation in certain places mean that people like us show up for work every day because we don't need to be watched or fill out timesheets. We just do what we do because that's what professionals do or a community demands it or a professional norm in the office just kind of self-regulates and ensures that people uh, do that. Um, and just other places, those things aren't there at all. And so how do you construct that? Well, there's no policy fix. You've got to have a create, you've got a space in which people come to figure out how to make those things work for themselves. So yes, the, the, the practice I think would be different. I, I think policy is determined by political forces above our pay grade. I don't, this mythical person called a policymaker who sits around waiting for researchers to tell them what to do and I'll have an epiphany and think, oh my God, the researcher, geez, I didn't know I should be doing this rather than that. Like, those people do not exist as far as I, in my experience. But what you do have people saying, well, the, you know, all the Forces of darkness in our country have decided what the policy should be. Voters have some token input into all of that, or they have a second, second degree input because they elected the politicians, or the politicians do their deals and the policy is what the policy is. Then all the boring stuff happens when the, when the policy is announced and all the mid-level and frontline officials have to show up to do whatever it is that the policy has been decreed to be. And it's in that space, that's where I think where. The, around the world, <laughs> but it, um, and 
uh, even in, in the UK here, that those those are big, big challenges, and there isn't a by definition there isn't a policy fix once the policy unless the policy is completely stupid. But most of the time, it's there within margins of sense, political sensibility. There's no egregious sort of error necessarily. But then, just geez, can you actually do that kind of work? So. Like a, a movie like I, Daniel Blake, for example, right? Geez, that's a fantastic movie, mm. right? Um, and you can tell different, you know, different political, ideological vantage mm. points mm. can sort of mm. give their explanatory narrative about why that is such a heartbreaking movie, and it's a movie, so yeah, plays up certain exaggerated, yeah. whatever. Those all those are given, um, but as a as a story about a high-income OECD country with a well-established long history of social protection policies of one kind or another, yeah. you're in the 21st century, you've got the Daniel Blakes of the world who are just illegible to the yeah. state. They, they're, they're carpenters. They've, they have no, they don't mm. even know what the word CV stands for. They've mm. never turned on a computer. And those people are illegible. They just, mm. Their system can't read them. How do you get those people back in with a better policy? Mm. It's people that get them back in. The people, the, all the, the heroes of that film are the, are the people that defy their own imperatives and their managers yelling at them to actually try and be a human being to another human being and sort of help them to navigate this bureaucratic space that's completely alien to them such that they get the resources and to again, that's a nice point about qualitative research and understanding people's concerns, their constraints, their perspectives, exactly. and how they navigate through these bureaucratic systems. Okay, but wait, now let me ask you a political economy question, a meta question, a political economy question of mixed methods. So, with no offense, Michael, you're not the first person to trumpet mixed methods. Many people have pushed for this, but the bank, your institution, tends to favor quant. Why is that? You know, people have been writing about mixed methods for a long time, and your, mm. your chapter is great, I love it, it's very comprehensive and nuanced. But how can we tackle this hubris among economists? Besides showing, as you do in this paper, why qualitative research matters, what can we actually do to get them engaged? Like, do we need some sort of incentive so it's in a research grant that you have to team up with an ethnographer like me? Or, you know, how do we get them to engage rather than just putting the information out there and hoping they learn it? They hope and accept it. Uh, I think there's a couple of things to say in, on that. Um, one is that ev ev the paradox of economics is that it, for all of its Greek and all of its, com its sophistication, it actually provides the simple answers that bureaucracies need raise or lower interest rates by a quarter of a point. Geez, the machine in the background's doing all sorts of whistleblowing and steam and engine churning and wheels and cogs turning and the thumbs up to rotating the interest rates of the world by 0.25%. Man, a bureaucracy loves that, right? The intelligentsia, the deep theory, data crunching, whatever, but it, ultimately all of that machinery produces a verdict. Mm. Raise interest rates by a quarter mm. of a point. Mm. And that is... Uh, that, Great, you know, <laughs> that's probably what should happen, yeah. um, and that's the that's you know how we get all the benefits of of of, uh, of th that flow through big systems are because paradoxically and and only relatively recently, and by recently I mean in the last forty years, mm. really have economists come to dominate the policy apparatus in countries around the world. It used yeah. to be run by lawyers and by accountants. Mm. And, and there's a wonderful paper written out 25 years ago now mm. called The Ubiquitous Rise of Economists. It's a, and it's a wonderful intellectual history and political economy history of how one particular profession huh. in late modernity came to ascendance when it didn't... I mean, even the World Bank, since my beloved institution, it was not staff for the first half of its existence. It was staff... Really? Yeah, engineers and accountants, right? Because the job was building stuff. Yeah. And it's axiomatic that we need, that when you go to countries in Southeast Asia in 1950 and 60, that, uh, 1670, that there's just no roads everywhere, irrigation systems need to be built, and that, that to, to actually get those done, you need engineers and accountants, and the you know, internal rates of return or other kinds of numbers that might ultimately be needed to cost out those things are quite ably done by different kinds of persons. So economists are relatively late mm. entrance into the into the bank or into bureaucratic mm. systems of one kind or other. Look at even like our you know your wonderful show uh, Yes Minister for example. There's no economists in mm. there. Like there's no there's no, there's no sort of goofy caricature that's a parody of himself mm. running around mm. trying to. I bet if they did one now, that would there would be that mm. person there, mm. right? So that's part of the answer. So. 
all the sophistication and complexity of economics ultimately produces simple answers. Big bureaucratic systems want simple answers. That's part of it. Um, I think another another part of it, paradoxically, and this is the, the one I get occasionally land a punch with, <laughs> uh, is that one of the, probably not the most important principle of economics, maybe the fourth or fifth most mm. important mm. principle is that monopolies are, are bad. Mm. <laughs> that they're inefficient, you set up high barriers to entry, mm. you create all sorts of distortions, mm. inverted commas in markets, and da 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 da. Um, and well, my argument's always been, well, why doesn't that argument hold intellectually? Like, why do, why have you set up a quintessentially set up a monopoly mm. around what counts as a question and what counts mm. as an answer mm. in this space? And if you were true to your own principles, you would say we should have a market for ideas here. But no monopolist ever cedes their monopoly. Exactly. But so how do we d how do we tackle this? Well, I, I'm I'm a nerdy researcher guy, so I fight fire with fire. I try to. <laughs> all I can ever do is. Uh, show that we're in a pay now or pay later kind of world. You can keep doubling down on what you're doing uh, and you'll reap the fruit of that, of but, that uh, kind of But work. seriously, so you think that by presenting, if we just write enough, if we just write persuasively, the economists will come around no, and no, include no, no, the no. quality no, no, of no, no, no. We've got to do, or we, as in the, 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 the non-economic, and I should stress I'm I, I'm not anti-economics. No, 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 I sure. Did. We're all for, we, you and I are for mixed methods, but the problem is that the, the economy... Want. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, How do we get them on board? How do we get them to join our lifeboat? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, you know, the, the mantra that my good friend and colleague, Lance Pritchard, always said about PDIA, for that mm. matter, was you beat something with something better. I said that mm. before, and I'll, it bears lots of repeating. <laughs> no theory of change, I don't think, that's really credible, says the world will change if you yell at it loud enough, right? Sure. You, uh, you beat it with something better. Mm. And I've, my career has been spent trying to tackle pretty messy, complicated problems with an with a, in a, with a, uh, analytic strategy of, here's what orthodoxy would do if it did this kind of work, and you'd mm. get this kind of answer, and you can just do that through literature reviews or anything mm. else. And here's what we get when we try and do this with a fuller array of intellectual tools and methods to bring to bear, right? And I had the, either some combination of vanity or confidence that somehow <laughs> I could build up a, a team of people to do that kind of work and who would be committed to doing that kind of work. And the speak study we did on Indonesia and all of the work we did on justice reform all uh, was built on that kind of platform that uh, you can keep cutting and pasting your way to justice reform around the world because you've set up indexes that mm. sort of measure these things and show that a country like Uganda is 99 out of 100 good on its anti-corruption law and then you can and that's your measured foundation on which you proceed or you can say what are the actual problems that Ugandans or Solomon Islanders or Papua New Guineans or Brazilians face on any particular day uh, what would justice look like if you're trying to access the prevailing system in those countries and how can you incorporate a much more granular understanding of what the prevailing system looks like to then try and either build its capability to do a better job or if reforms are warranted engage in that process in a much more granular locally legitimate way okay so let's suppose you have one of your let's suppose you have one of your colleagues who's wavering who's vaguely who's interested and who buys your arguments that we need to understand some of this stuff but they'll say hey wait a minute i'm an economist i don't know how to do so you know i i don't know how to do qualitative research so is is your aim say for example operationally within the bank to extend and expand your team of qualitative researchers or is it to try and get your economists within the bank to partner with other people outside the bank who are qualitative researchers i mean operationally what do you think would be a good strategy for the bank to improve its understanding of this complex stuff i i think mo most of my colleagues and they're all very diligent, super talented people yeah, yeah. doing and I uh, take field work super seriously. Yeah, of course. So my sense is that eventually reality just bites you on that, right? Mm. Uh, but, and that said, the second part to your answer to your question would be say, no, that this, geez, that they, to actually do cutting edge research now, it's, you, it, you're doing well if you just get your own little slice of the universe sorted out, right? Mm. Which is to say, no one should be expected to singularly have the, t the actual skills to be able to do the full array of methods available. But mm. you, if, and why I distinguished before between being well-trained and being well-educated, mm. 
training teaches you how to be really good in your little zone yep. of competence and what you're what you're good at, what you're comfortable doing, mm -hmm. and da da. Uh, but your education should tell you that Jesus, a much bigger universe out there, yep. right? I, I had a wonderful, memorable annual meet a review meeting with a, a manager that I shall remain nameless uh, several years ago now, and. Um, I took an unusual turn when suddenly I was, uh, he asked me out of the blue. So, like, what do I need to know about this this qualitative stuff? Like, I didn't you know what, what do I what's what's it all about really exactly? <laughs> and I found myself answering sort of under the under the pressure of a annual review kind of meeting. Mm -hmm. I just sort of said, "What you need to do is to read something on the philosophy of social science so that you know that there's a space for something called qualitative methods." Mm -hmm. <laughs> And once you've got a higher order framing in your head that says there isn't just one way to address these problems and not just variance within the same epistemological space, but there is a whole vastly different array of ways and combinations of ways in which you can get at these problems and you've got a coherent model in your head for what that space looks like and, why, and how one could optimize within the constraints of, that one finds oneself. Uh, to mobilize those people, the teams of people then, to get at those particular issues, then you, then you can proceed. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, most of my, you know, most of the people who sit in my corridor at the, at the World Bank mm. just spend months of their life running around villages and mm. they're, so they're routinely hiring sort of quantitative consultants, but more just to make sure their survey is actually, the contract validity yep. person, make sure the survey itself is right. Mm. Um, uh, but they're they're part of a tribe. They're part of an epistemic community called economists that does what other economists value, right? So when you're in this, the world of what counts as a question and what counts as an answer, you and you're ambitious or you just you know want to get your work and into the most uh, prestigious forums, you reverse engineer what you do around those particular yeah. forums, and it's ident inter internal validity identification strategies are 99% of what those journals seem to care about. So. Not surprisingly, that's that's the incentive that people face. They have zip, there's no message or signaling that they get in their training or in their mm. uh, journal reviewing process mm. or anything that would really say, well, maybe you'd actually get a really different answer if you hired an anthropologist, mm. you know, three anthropologists mm. to help you. And, and until that space has been structured in a way that will, would would make it look like that, um, then we're we're going to be in a world where. Uh, the disciplines go along entirely comfortably in their own isolation mm. and the monopoly will continue to preside unchallenged and it'll do what it'll but I'd, I would wager because economics tells me so <laughs> that that monopoly will generate all the very predictable outcomes that a monopoly generates anywhere else in life. Mm. Okay so let me try to succinctly summarize. So what we're saying is there are brilliant people along your corridor doing amazing work and they're talented and dedicated and there are incentives to continue the way they do things and their herd continues doing what the herd does. And they generate brilliant research and getting published in journals and showing what's happening with internal validity, but they can understand things in a much more deeper, complex level and reveal whole new insights if they brought in their teams and uh, engage with some ethnographers, anthropologists, etc. They might see things in a whole new light, so we're encouraging them to expand. That'll do for now. Thank you. <laughs> okay, let's get to dinner. Very good.